Uh, Father, we, uh, we sit at your feet tonight. We open our Bibles. We look upon the page. And we absorb what's there. But, Father, ultimately we are just sitting at your feet. And we need you to teach us what it is you want us to know. Uh, the words here have never changed. But we do know, Father, that what you might speak to each of us in our hearts tonight might be a little different, one to another. And that in that little difference that you might whisper into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, you are, you are taking this living word and you are placing it on our hearts in a way that will please you if we listen and if we obey. And in that process, Father, you, you use the mouth of a man standing behind a pulpit because in your wisdom and in your grace... You have made it possible for others to participate in this, in this marvelous and holy work of sanctification through the washing of the water of the Word. But, Father, in that way, we get in your way. We, we make what is easy for you more difficult and what is perfect in its origins perhaps less perfect in our delivery. So I ask, Father, that as only you can, you would take what's said, you would take what's heard, and you would perfect it in the hearts of those who receive it tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're coming to the end of the first half of the book of Matthew. And if you look at the division of chapters here, there's 28 chapters. 12 is not halfway. So the division I'm giving you not now is not reflected in the chapter count. But thematically, the book divides very distinctly between chapters 12 and before and chapters 13 and onward. And you're going to look at that divide with me more next week when we get into 13 next week. Meanwhile, we have to finish this first half tonight, that is finishing chapter 12. And we do that with a fascinating exchange between Christ and the Pharisees. Now remember, he's just condemned the nation of Israel for not accepting the sign that they saw him do, and they recognized its meaning, and they realized it meant he was the Messiah, and yet... When the Pharisees gave the alternative explanation that he was Satan, they chose that explanation rather than what their eyes had seen. And we've studied this crucial moment for about two weeks now. And as we looked at it, we understood that 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 moment, when they dismissed the miracle and they called it something of Satan, what the nation did at that moment was cross a line that you cannot come back across again. The Bible calls it the unpardonable sin, or some would say the unforgivable sin. That sin is not something an individual can commit. It's only in reference to the national sin of Israel. There's no such thing as a sin that can't be forgiven an individual. But the nation could not be forgiven for rejecting the Messiah sent to her in the day that Jesus came. That national transgression results in the nation of Israel losing the opportunity to see the kingdom appear on earth for quite some time. In fact, they're still waiting as a result of that unpardonable sin. So at the moment that sin took place, Jesus withdrew the offer of the kingdom from that generation of Israel. And in its place, he initiates something I've called the kingdom program. And that program begins with Jesus training his disciples, those who were in that day and all who have followed, to carry on the mission of the church. And that mission, of course, is to recruit men and women from out of the world to come to faith in Christ, and as such, they become citizens of that future kingdom, that when it finally appears on earth, as we're all waiting for it to do one day, they will be citizens of that kingdom already, ready to walk into it on day one. That's the faith that we all expect. That's what faith brings. So that's the shift that's happening here, from the kingdom proposal to Israel, to a kingdom program that will take the place of the kingdom on earth for a time. Now, as we learned last week, this kingdom will also include Israel in a day to come. Israel has not been excluded from the kingdom. 
Not entirely. There will be a day in the future in which, as the kingdom appears and Jesus returns to set it up, Israel will be included in that. But as we studied last week, the nation has to reverse the mistake they just made in order for that to happen. Jesus declared to them in some of the study we did last week that they would not see him again, he said, until they would declare, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a simple way of saying, based on the psalm that he quotes from, it's a simple way of saying, until you acknowledge me in the way that you didn't do this time, I will not come back to you. And so what we learned last week was the second coming of Christ happens when all Israel declares him Messiah. Now, as I said also last week, some of you hear that and you think, well, how in the world is that ever going to happen? Well, we'll get there. That's chapter 24. Meanwhile, you know, like in a year, right? So meanwhile... (laughs) We have to move on to the end of this chapter. And the incredible events that we studied last week happened simply because the nation would not acknowledge the Spirit's irrefutable sign that Jesus was the Messiah. And that's particularly ironic when you look at what happens next in the text. What comes next is the Pharisees demanding that Jesus grant them yet another sign. Look at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet, no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now you remember back in 37, verse 37, Jesus told the religious leaders that they would be accountable for the careless words that they spoke when they denied Jesus' miracle. He had just said that to them. And I imagine that rebuke caught those guys off guard. You know, these guys weren't used to being called to task in a public arena. This isn't exactly what they were accustomed to. And I think it made them a little defensive to to hear Jesus come against them so strongly in the moment. Perhaps they worried that maybe they appeared a little hasty in their judgment. Maybe their, their reputation was at stake with the crowd. So they tried to recover. And they try to recover by throwing a question back at Jesus. It makes them appear as if they're still objective. They're still trying to figure this out. Hey, come on now. We just want a little more data. Can you give us a sign, please? And they ask him for this sign. Now, on the face of it, that kind of a question doesn't really seem that unreasonable. I mean, it it might even be considered wise, right? You want to double check. You want to make sure. You wouldn't want to run after the wrong guy. False messiahs were not uncommon. So, sure, a sign seems reasonable. But coming as it did on the heels of Jesus' messianic miracle just a moment earlier, well, then their question is obviously a joke. It's obviously a farce. They're implying that Jesus has not done enough yet to prove himself to them, and so they've lacked sufficient uh, proof. They They need more data here in order to reach a conclusion. And yet, if you look at the text we studied last time, his uh, earlier sign was so conclusive that a bunch of uneducated, unlearned Jews in a crowd looked at it and immediately figured it out. So if they could do that, then the learned scholars of Israel, the rep, you know, these religious leaders, they could figure it out too. I mean, the whole idea that they don't have enough data is ridiculous. Their problem, as some would say, is not a skill problem, it's a will problem. They don't want to believe it. They don't want to receive him. They don't have any intention of helping him. And Jesus knew it. And so he responds to their request even more harshly than he had earlier. Look what he says. He says, They are an evil and adulterous generation because they crave for a sign. 
Now, the first thing you need to notice about that response is that Jesus speaks against a generation. You see that word? The generation of Israel, he says. You notice, he didn't say, you leaders are adulterous and evil. He didn't say this crowd is such. He said, it's the whole generation that's the problem. And when you see that comment, you're seeing confirmation there of what I said earlier, that the unforgivable sin was a national sin, not an individual sin. This whole conflict in chapter 12 is between a nation of people who got what they were supposed to get and noticed it and yet rejected it, and the one who came offering it. And so Jesus says, you as a people, you as a generation have fallen under judgment. And I'm not giving you all any more signs. Now, you might ask at this point, how can he condemn an entire nation of people for the actions of this crowd, these few that were there in the moment? Does that seem unfair? Well, first of all, the religious leaders were representatives of the people of Israel. That was their job. And as such, they did what uh, our leaders here do today. For example, we have leaders of our nation that are representatives of us. We elect them, and they stand in our place, and they make decisions on our behalf, right? And you are bound by their decisions, whether you like it or not. And I should add, whether they do the right thing or not. Whatever they do, you're bound by it. You don't, you know, it's not like you get to say, that law is not for me. That decision I don't want to agree with. And the same was true in that day. The nation was bound by the decisions of their representatives. Remember, there's another point in the Gospels when Jesus is talking about these men and their rule over the people of Israel. And you remember this? Remember he says that you should do as they say, but don't do as they do? Now, we understand the don't do as they do part, right? Because they were evil. But he says, do what they say, because they were in charge. They had the leadership of the nation. And usurping leadership, being a rebel against a leader, is not godliness even when that leader is not doing the right thing. So, these men declared Jesus to be Satan, and as such, they acted on behalf of the nation. And they put that nation into judgment. That's the first thing you need to know. Second thing you need to know is the nation was willingly following them. Don't don't think as if these guys are on one side, and you got the rest of Israel over here saying, no, 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 we love this guy, we want him to be our Messiah. Stop, Stop treating him badly. That's not what was going on. We've said uh, already that Jesus had these kind of encounters over and over again. If you've read the other Gospels, you'll see plenty of examples. John 6 is one of the best ones where he goes and he makes bread for a bunch of people when he makes the fishes and the loaves. He goes to the other side of the lake. They follow him to the other side of the lake. Remember why they followed him in John 6? To get more bread. They just want the food. They didn't care about him. This is the nation as a whole. All right, There is no evidence in any of the four Gospels that the crowds objected to their leaders when their leaders said, He is not Messiah. They just went with it. So they're just as culpable. Third thing I would tell you is, although this scene may have only involved a very small fraction of the percentage of people who were in Israel at the time, their actions here are indicative of the heart of the nation as a whole. We know that at the end of Jesus' earthly life, crowds have turned entirely against Him. They're asking for Barabbas, not for Him. Right? You, you need to look at this with open eyes and understand that throughout the gospel record, his success, if you want to call it that, his popularity, it's always fleeting. And it's always based on the wrong things. People wanting the wrong thing from him. People expecting the wrong thing. It is the rare case that you have true faith attached. Remember, he says, I've not seen faith like this in all of Israel. When he looked at the centurion, when he said that he had a or a slave that needed to be healed. There's, there's moments throughout the Gospels like that where you realize Jesus is not being treated well 
generally in Israel, any time. And by the way, I should add, if you look at the Jewish people today, generally around the world, uh, they are still set very much against Jesus. <laughs> right? And that is not something they embrace with any love. So while this scene involved a small number of people, Jesus knew the hearts of all people. And so when he condemned this generation, he was not making a hasty generalization. He was not rushing to judgment. He knew what he was talking about, and he knew where the the state of the heart of the nation was at that moment. And time had run out. And then I'll add one final thing. If you're still concerned that Jesus might have been unfair to Israel when he condemned the entire nation because of what the Pharisees said, you need to remember, this is a national Judgment, And what I mean by that is, Jesus condemned the nation for rejecting him, but the penalty we're talking about here is that they lost the kingdom as a nation in that day. But it did not preclude individual Jews from coming to faith. Nothing about this judgment put any barrier at all between an individual Jew and salvation. Every single person in Israel, just like every single person today, just like every single person who's ever lived since Jesus, at least in theory, has the potential to be a believer. And nothing Jesus said to Israel in that time put anyone in any position of disadvantage. He was simply saying to the nation, you will not get my kingdom now. That's all he was saying. And that is a completely fair judgment. All right, look at what the response here is in response to the Pharisees' request for a sign. Look what he says now. He says, I'm not going to give you any more signs. And then he, he says, because you are evil and because you are adulterous. Look at those two words for just a second here. Why is seeking for a sign evil? Well, you know, you might think of men like Gideon, for example. Gideon sought for a sign. We don't see that as a problem. He's held out as a man who was doing the right thing. And hasn't God given signs to men from time to time throughout the Bible? When it was necessary to communicate? Well, yes. And the difference here is simply this. It is not wrong to seek for signs if your intent is to understand how to obey. If that's your desire, you need to know more so that you can obey, then seek for a sign. I had a friend one time who, God love him, he he had such a a sincere faith, childlike faith. Uh, He wanted God to tell him an answer to a question he had about what to do in his life. And he, I don't know where he got the idea, but he said, I'm just going to open my Bible and that'll be the answer from God. And he read the verse. I can't remember now what exactly it said, but I can tell you that when he tells you the story, the verse read exactly like an answer to his question. And then he stopped like we all would, and he said, well, maybe that's just coincidence. And then he noticed the name of the book. I'll tell you, the guy's name was Dan. And guess which book he had opened to? Daniel. <laughs> So I'm not saying that's a methodology that we should all just run and embrace. But what I am saying is this. Signs sought with a heart to obey is something God delights in. It's no differently than if you were a parent and your child came to you and wanted to do the right thing and just wanted you to tell them how to do it. That's fine. Now that's not the problem here. If you are seeking a sign as an excuse for not obeying, Now you are doing sin. Now you're doing something that's going to anger God. In the first case, that of somebody who's trying to obey, you have situations like Gideon, who ask for a sign because they're just unsure about what the right course of action might be. And they want some confirmation. But in the second case, you have people like these Pharisees, men or women in other cases, who know exactly what God wants. There is no confusion in their minds or in their hearts. But they act as if they're unsure so that they don't have to obey. And when I say act, I don't mean you're pretending for God's sake. I think we pretend to ourselves. We're really good at that, actually, aren't we? 
you know, kind of pretending we don't know what we really know. It's like pretending you didn't hear your spouse when you don't like what's being said. Or your boss. Or I guess it's the same thing. Never mind. Jesus said, Jesus said the real reason they asked him for another sign was because they are evil and adulterous. And what evil refers to, of course, is that these men, these Pharisees, are just ungodly men. They're unbelieving men. And maybe that's the easiest way for me to characterize them for you. You need to put the, the modern label on them. They were unbelievers. The Pharisees, ironically, religious leaders of Israel, and they were unbelievers. And that's not unprecedented, right? We have people today who lead Christian churches who are unbelievers. I'm not naming any, I'm just telling you they exist. I've been in churches where I learned later that the man in the pulpit wasn't a believer. And you might say, well, how does that happen? It's easy. Someone let him stand up there. It's not like you get a test in a lot of places. And more importantly, there's a lot of churches where the people are unbelievers, so it doesn't really matter at that point who's standing in front of them. And in that day, you had crowds of unbelievers led by men who were unbelievers, and Jesus steps into that world and says, believe in me, and, you know, for the most part, they don't get it. And then they say, give us a little sign to make sure that we understand you better. What these men did in their evil hearts was they made their own authority more important than God's, and then in their adulterous thinking, and adulterous hearts, they began to seek for gods of their own making rather than to seek for the one true God that was revealing himself to them. The pursuit of God through their law became their idol. And that's what they preferred. You know, when your heart is set on another, you will not love the one you have. And when their heart was set on the other thing they created, the one they had in their midst, they didn't love. And therefore Jesus said, no more signs for you. But he says, I'll give you one. One more sign you get. The only one you're going to get at this point is the sign, he says, of Jonah. Now, up to this point in Jesus' earthly ministry, the Lord has been doing a lot of signs. Uh, We've studied quite a few of them already in this book. There's a bunch more in the other Gospels. But in the point we've been so far, up through 12, the signs were all being done for the purpose of proving his claim to be Messiah. He was making the proof available. So, in addition to casting out the mute demon, which we saw earlier, he heals lepers. Remember, that one came back uh, earlier in this book. That was another messianic miracle. And beyond that, he's been teaching with authority. He's been healing multitudes. I mean, remember, he did the fishes and the loaves. By this point, he's walked on water. I mean, there isn't a lot left for him to do that it can prove that he's the Messiah. All right, he's done it all. Truly, signs everywhere. But now he says, we're done with that. We're done. From this point in Matthew's narrative, and this is one of the things I like about Matthew's gospel the most, Matthew makes a very concerted effort to put all of what he was doing before this moment in the first half of his narrative. And then after this chapter, he's very careful not to put any of that in after this, so as to make the contrast very clear to his readers. There was a style of ministry before, and there's a style of ministry after. After this chapter, not one time in the Gospel of Matthew do we see Jesus doing any more miracles strictly for the purpose of proving himself to the crowds. That's over. You will not see any more in this book. What you will see at this point moving forward is Jesus performing miracles only for individuals who demonstrate faith first. Up to this point, there's been no test of faith. He's never asked anybody as a test of faith. He's never put any requirements on anyone. We've heard over and over again in this gospel, he's been healing multitudes. Everyone, it says. Everyone that came to him, he healed. Going forward, not going to do that anymore. He only heals somebody who has faith. Because the message has changed. He is now looking 
at a different outcome. And this shift makes perfect sense. When you're performing signs, you're trying to convince someone. Now that the opportunity for Israel to receive their kingdom is done, the unpardonable sin has taken place, what would be the point in performing signs anymore? They can't act on it anyway. They can't receive what's not being offered. And so there's no purpose in that anymore. They're no longer eligible, and so the signs cease. And in verse 40, he says, I'm going to have one exception to this no sign policy, and that's the sign of Jonah. Now, you, you know, almost anyone who's ever been in church knows of this name. In fact, people who've never been in church know the name Jonah. And most of us know why it's a name we know, because he got swallowed by a fish. He spent some quality time in a fish. And that, that's the thing we all know about this guy, right? But there's a lot more to his story, and Jesus is referring to some of it here in what he says. Uh, so just for background's sake, Jonah was a Jewish prophet. He's got a book in the Old Testament. He's a jo- Jewish prophet. He was sent by God to preach a message of repentance to a city of the Assyrians called Nineveh. Ancient city at the time, or ancient city of, uh, from our day. It was a big city at the time. And when Jonah got the message from God to go to Nineveh, he opposed it. He didn't want to do it. Because he despised the Assyrians. They were longtime enemies of Israel. So, rather than obey God's call, as you probably know, Jonah flees from God. He hires a ship to take him as far from Israel as he can go. That was his response to God's call. Eventually... Jonah finds himself swallowed by a a, a large fish, as we said. And the Lord leaves Jonah in that fish for a time in order to convince him to fulfill his appointed mission. And Jonah, if you don't know the story, Jonah's stubborn. How stubborn is Jonah? Well, he's so stubborn that it requires three days and three nights inside that fish before he decides, okay, fine, I'll go to Nineveh. Three days and three nights inside a whale or a fish or something of that sort. Think about that. You think your kids are stubborn? This, this is on a whole new level. I think if you were to look up stubborn in the Bible dictionary, there's a picture of Jonah right there. Because this guy, I mean, that's a lot of convincing. And Jesus says Jonah's experience in that way, in the fish, serves as a, as a sign or a picture of something Jesus does in his ministry. And specifically, he says at the end of verse 40, he'll spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, What he just said is this. The sign of Jonah is my death and resurrection. That's the only sign I'm going to give you from this point forward. So Jonah was left for dead, basically, in the body of this fish for three days and three nights. And then he comes out later, and it's as if he's alive again, walking on the earth again. Jesus actually dies. He's actually gone for three days and three nights. And he comes back to life. So the resurrection, Jesus says, is going to be the one and only sign I'm offering this generation anymore. That's the only one that they get before I'm gone to prove that I'm Messiah. And we know how that sign was received, right? You should know. Some received it. Some believed in it. Not many. And those who did were saved. And the rest did not. But did you know this? Believing in the sign of Jonah is still the way you get saved? It wasn't just a sign for Israel in that respect. Paul says this in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the sign of Jonah, he says, you will be saved. In effect, what he said to Israel was, the only sign you're going to get anymore is the one that saves you individually because the nation will no longer have the opportunity to receive their kingdom. So all that's left is personal salvation. And what you'll have to believe to receive that is the sign of Jonah. So saving faith requires that belief. 
Which is why in verse 41, Jesus says that at the judgment, the men of Nineveh, the ones who heard Jonah's preaching and the story of Jonah, they will judge this generation of Israel. Now, I thought at this point it might be helpful if you guys heard uh, what actually happened when Jonah went into Nineveh. Because it's relevant to why Jesus says Nineveh gets to judge Israel. And it's chapter 3, and I can read the whole chapter. By the way, if you haven't read Jonah, it's four chapters. They're all short. You could read it in a short time. It's not long. Chapter 3 reads this way. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. Now this is after he's out of the fish. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock... Taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. That's it. Chapter 3 of Jonah. All right, I want you to understand why Jesus says Nineveh gets to judge Israel. We're told Jonah arrives at this great city, and we're told this city is so big that it would take a man three days to cross it. And just to give you an idea of that, you can walk about 20 miles in a day. So what we're hearing is a city that would take about as long to cross as San Antonio, if you kind of go to the outskirts. Try walking across this city from the outskirts. It would take you a couple days, maybe three days to cross it entirely. That's how big this city was in ancient times. All right, So he starts into that city with his mission of, of telling them about what's coming, converting them, as it were. And it says he gets barely one day's walk in. So he's not even gone a third of the city's distance, preaching this message of repentance. And the message catches fire among the people. And Jonah's preaching triggers a citywide revival, from the greatest to the least. You have idol worshiper, pagan idol-worshipping Gentiles turning to the living God. Even the king of the city is converted, it says. Now that's what happened. And Jesus says that city of idol-worshipping Gentiles will stand with Jesus at the judgment and condemn the generation of Israel that rejected him. And why does Jesus say they will have that right? Because he says they were willing to receive the message that they had from a lesser messenger than the one Israel had. Now I want you to consider the comparison, because this is the main point. I want you to consider the comparison of the ministry of Jonah versus the ministry of Jesus. Because that's the comparison we're making here. Now you know Jesus' ministry was impressive. I don't have to review all of that, right? He was the Messiah. He, he did all these miracles. He said all this great stuff. He did all this awe-inspiring, you know, impressive works. And it's no wonder that people would look at that and be impressed. Although they weren't. Alright, now what do you think about Jonah though? What's Jonah doing? First of all, he's an ordinary man. He doesn't have anything special. He's not performing any miracles. He doesn't do a a thing. He shows up. In fact, what do you think he looks like after three days in stomach acid? I'm guessing he's probably white and hairless. Right? Bleached? 
I mean, he's not pretty, whatever he is. And compare their motivation. You know, Jesus was motivated. We heard earlier last week that he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you like a mother gathers her chicks. Remember that? He wanted them to believe in him. He worked at it. He wanted them not to to suffer. But what about Jonah? You know, Jonah didn't even want to go. Jonah went the other way. He did not want to see them saved. He was against the whole idea. In fact, I want you to listen to what's said in the first verse of chapter 4. I just read you chapter 3. Here's the next verse. Remember, what what did chapter 3 end with? And God relented and would not punish them. And right? Good news? Next verse. This greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. (laughs) He is a teenager, isn't he? Jonah had just participated in the greatest revival in the history of the world up to that point. And his response to the miracle is to be displeased with the outcome and angry. So you know his heart, right? My point is, put yourself in his shoes. Now here he is, I love to think about this. He's standing at the threshold of the city. He's feeling, you know how he feels, right? You got his heart, you understand his, his thinking. He's gone into the city and here he is. He's about to do the job. It's like your teenager who's been told they have to wash the dishes and they're barely even making an effort. And he goes into the city, he's like, repent, God's going to wipe you out. Repent, okay, am I done? Is that enough? Oh, no, okay, repent, repent. You might want to repent. Things are going to come, might want to repent. I'm thinking this guy is putting least effort, minimum effort into this. I'm thinking he's not really working very hard because he doesn't want it to work. And I love the fact that God can take the least that you do and magnify it, right? So the whole city gets saved. I wish I had a picture of his face as that was happening. What? What? You know, what? He's just beside himself at the whole idea that it's working. All right, so here's the point. How enthusiastically did Jonah work at his job versus Jesus? How impressive was he versus Jesus? What were the results compared to Jesus? Do you think the people of Nineveh have a right to stand with Christ at that point and say to the generation of Israel who received the Messiah, you guys should have done better with what you were given? That's his point. That's the contrast. The community that received probably the least enthusiastic gospel presentation in all history responded with sackcloth and ashes. And the privileged nation of Israel received the most generous revelation of God in all history and they dismissed it with careless words. Moving on, Jesus offers a second comparison, verse 42. He says, The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now you see the pattern. I don't need to belabor it. It's just enough to make note here of who she is. Uh, This is a story that comes out of 1 Kings 10. The queen of Sheba. Sheba is in Arabia, which is present-day Saudi Arabia. So it's directly south of Israel. That's why she's called the queen of of the south. She heard from where she was about the wisdom of Solomon. And she heard that God had given him such wisdom that it it was so remarkable, such blessing, that she had to hear it herself. She travels all the way up and comes to his court with gifts and listens and says in 1 Kings 10, everything I've heard is true and more. You're even more wise than I would have ever ever imagined. So at the judgment, Jesus says, this queen, the queen of the south, will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and she will stand condemning Israel for ignoring such great revelation. And the point again is obvious. Israel received more than enough data. They had all they needed, and they did nothing with it. And those who had far less, far less, 
I mean, the Queen of Sheba, she just heard a rumor and she travels to go find out the truth. They will judge that generation. You know, there's a lesson for Christians here too, and I don't want to overlook it because at this point it's all history, right? It doesn't hit us as much. Because we need to understand, we too have signs that come to us. We have revelation that comes to us in some sense. And I often hear Christians asking this question, sometimes of me. They'll say, how do I know what the Lord wants me to do? And I think we've all faced that question. It's not an illegitimate one. It's nothing wrong with that question. I don't know what to do. Should I quit my job? Should I get this new job? Should I sell my house? Should I do this? Should I date this girl? Should I do There's questions in our life that we wonder, what's the path I'm supposed to take? And so we seek for that answer. In my experience, and I'm not saying this is a, a rule, it's just something I've noticed in general, the vast majority of the time that someone comes to me asking about a question like that and they say, I don't know what God wants me to do, if you, if you dig down into their situation, they have all the data. God's already told them what to do. They've got everything they need to know between the Bible, godly counsel, and their own insight from prayer or however God gave it to them. They kind of know what to do. The problem usually is they don't like that answer. There's something about that path that worries them, bothers them, scares them. And so they'll say, I need more confidence. I need more proof. I need more assurance. What are they saying? Lord, give us another sign. That's what they're saying. Now, again, it's a different situation, and the penalty is not the same, and all the rest. But the reality is, a lot of times we have been given the revelation we need in one form or another, and we're sitting still on it. I like to say it this way. There is a time to pray and seek the Lord's counsel. Absolutely. But you know what? There's also a time to get off your knees and do what you've been told. And we just sometimes spend a little extra time in that ask side of the problem because we don't really want to move to the other side of the problem when it's time. We're so good at that game, I think sometimes we fool ourselves a little at that. You're in danger at times of believing your own claims of ignorance. And as such, you just stay stalled at wherever you are. Now sometimes those claims are fair. Sometimes it is true that you're ignorant of what God's telling you to do. Sometimes we're truly ignorant. But it's sometimes because we're not studying, because we're not listening, because we're not working on the problem. You have to be careful about those games, because the Lord says this in His Word, through Jesus to that group of people. The more revelation we receive, the greater the expectation for our obedience. That's a general rule. So I ask you, who has received the greater revelation in this case? The Israel of Jesus' day, who was condemned for what they did with what they received? Or us? How much revelation did they have? Well, may I submit to you, you have everything they had, and then some. Because they had, what what they had, we have written to us in the Gospels, and then we got the whole epistles, and the book of Acts, and Revelation. We got a whole bunch of, and the maps at the back, we got maps. We got all this stuff that they didn't get in their day. So, I mean, by any fair standard, who has the most revelation? At least in the, in the sense of God's word. So we should have a high expectation of obedience, right? It shouldn't be the case that we can sit back and say, I don't know what to do. I love it when someone comes to me and they says, I'm living with this girl. I really don't know if I should marry her. Hello? I'm doing this. I have this habit, this, sin, this, this bad habit, this sin. I, I just, I don't know, if, you know what I should do. Get rid of it. I mean, I'm not saying that's easy, but what I'm saying is the answer is not hard. The direction, it's not hard. The doing it, okay, that can be hard. But don't rethink the, the, the need to do it. You can't afford to handle the word that you've received lightly, friends, because if you take what God has given you and you dismiss it lightly, I'm not saying your judgment will be what their judgment was. We're, we're in a totally different situation because of our faith. 
But it just means you've put God in a position where you're testing His patience. You're testing His grace, His mercy to you. You're, you don't want to do that. And I think that's, by the way, especially true for a group of Christians that make their home in a church that teaches the Bible. <laughs> I hate to break it to you, but I think your expectation went up a notch when you came in the door. That is because you have that much more to know. All right. Notice a couple of footnotes here on this thing Jesus says. Notice he says he'll spend three days and three nights in the grave. There's a couple of footnotes I think are worth mentioning as we pass on. You know, the Gospels report that Jesus rose from the grave before dawn on a Sunday. So if you count backwards three days and three nights from that moment, do you realize he died on a Thursday? The math does not work any other way. You don't get three days and three nights if you put them on a Friday and he's up before Sunday. So the whole traditional view of a Friday death is nothing more than just tradition. The Bible says Thursday. Uh, Secondly, notice he says he spends that time in the heart of the earth. His words confirm to us that hell, which is sort of where he was, not exactly. He wasn't suffering, but he was in the place of the holding of the dead. Hell is a real place. Jesus was there. It's a literal place. He wasn't metaphorically in hell. He said he was there. And thirdly, it's a physical place below your feet. It's in the center of the earth. It's physically located in the center of this ball that we all live on. That's where hell is. And Jesus says it. It's said elsewhere in the Bible. It's If you could dig deep enough below your feet, you would find all the souls of all unbelievers who've ever lived in torment. All right. We're going to end our lesson tonight with Jesus making one final observation. It goes quickly. But this is where we end really with the whole theme of the first half of Matthew. Verse 43, he says, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Now, in this example, Jesus compares Israel, the nation, to the body of a man who is demon-possessed. That's such an interesting analogy he's using because this whole scene kicked off with Jesus uh, you know, casting out a, a demon from a man and then all that came from that, right? So he's kind of come back full circle to that moment. And in this scenario that he describes here, you have a demon, which Jesus just calls an unclean spirit, but that's his name for demon. This, this demon goes out of a man, it says. Now, remember we've taught in here before that demons cannot leave a human body once they've indwelled it, except by two ways. Either the body dies, which releases the demon, or God casts it out. But once a demon has occupied a body, it by its own effort cannot get out. It is there until the body dies or until it's cast out. If you weren't here for that earlier teaching and you're wondering where all that came from, well, it's on the web. Meanwhile... In this situation, the body is not dying in the story that Jesus tells. The man's not said to die. In fact, the body's still alive because they come back, right? So that tells us that this has to be a case in which the body has seen the demon cast out. That's the only other way. So the scenario that Jesus is describing is uh, a body being cast out of a demon. And I think it's implied that he's the one doing the casting. So the, the situation he's describing is, I cast a demon out of a body. But remember, the body here stands for something. The body here is a picture of Israel, of the nation. So he says, if a demon is cast out of a person, it then passes through waterless places, he says, seeking rest. Now to understand what he's saying here, we just need to define those two terms. Waterless here, in the Greek, the actual word that's used in Greek is just the word dry. 
I don't know why they translated it waterless, but it's dry places. So the demons pass through dry places. Now, in that day, to pass through a dry place meant finding no accommodation. No town, no village, nowhere to stay, just barren wilderness. In other words, it's, the, it's a traveler who can't find a place to stay. There's just nothing here. I've got to keep traveling to find somewhere to stop. Like going to West Texas. You've got to go all the way past... You know, once you get to Ozona, there's nothing to Fort Stockton. You're pretty much driving, right? Uh, I grew up out there. I know what I'm talking about. So, well, there's windmills now, but you really wouldn't want to stay there. So in this scenario, you have a body cast out of a demon, nowhere for the demon to indwell. So Jesus says, what's that demon going to do? It's going to remember, oh, well, I had that home, and now that home's open. It's available. I'm just going to go back there. That's a great place to stay. Home here, then, means the previous body. Rest means finding a place to stay. And so Jesus is simply saying this. You have a man who was previously indwelled by a demon. The demon's cast out. God, through somebody, Jesus or some other prophet, etc., he does the work of casting the demon out. Okay, great. Now the man's healed. Then the demon goes and says, well, you know what? That's still the place I want to be. Comes back. Stays in the home a second time. Only now Jesus says that that man, that demon is finding that home so appealing because it's been swept clean. It's been put in order. It's actually a better place for him. How? Well, not in the way you're thinking. Not in the way we think. We think clean, tidy, neat. That's a nicer place to stay. Think demons. Demons think neat, tidy, healthy. That's a place we can wreck. That's a person I can do some more damage to. That's someone that if I show up now and take them from health back to unhealth, it will be a witness of terror, a witness of destruction. That's what they're, they're after. So in a way, making this man temporarily healthy makes him a higher target for that demon. And so the demon returns to the body, only now he comes with a vengeance, and he brings some buddies with him. Seven, it says. Seven is the number of completeness. So what he's really saying is the demon's new destruction of that man will be complete. He will come with so much power and so much hatred that the man will never see health again. All right, what's he trying to say about Israel? Well, um, he's saying it didn't have to be that way for that man. It didn't have to be that way. If that man had something occupying him after the first demon was cast out, then there'd have been no room for that second entry by the demons. Had his vessel been filled by the Holy Spirit, had the Holy Spirit set up residence in his heart, then there'd be a no vacancy sign on his body. And that demon that's wandering, looking for a place, would have come back and seen, oh, well, that place is taken now. I can't go there. Because if you believe in the Lord as your Savior, the Bible says that you now have the Spirit living in you. And the Bible also says that God is a jealous God. He will not share you with demons. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 and again in 2 Corinthians 6 that the two worlds do not mix and the Lord does not share you with demons. So that's his point to Israel. He came to Israel offering himself to them, performing signs, casting out demons from the people. So in that sense, you could say Jesus swept Israel's house clean. He prepared them to receive the Holy Spirit. He prepared them to receive himself as king. He prepared them so that had they simply said yes to him, they would have been in his care, his protection, and they would not have had any more concerns. That was the promise. But instead, they rejected him. And now, because they have been swept clean, as it were, but yet have not been filled as a result of believing in Him, now as a result of that, their new situation will be worse than their prior situation. In other words, my ministry to you, Jesus says, was of no value. You got nothing out of me. 
I want you to think about that for a minute. Three years of walking around in the Galilee, healing people, casting out demons, teaching with authority for nothing. Because the people that got healed, they're going to die anyway. The people who got cast out of demons, new demons are going to come in anyway. All that teaching, in one ear, out the other. What good did it do any of them? They all end up in hell anyway. And I'm saying that to make the point that I think Jesus is trying to make, which is, if our attentiveness to Him never goes past an earthly interest, then it's meaningless. To call Jesus a good person and to commend Him for His nice teaching and to kind of throw those accolades at Him without actually believing in Him, spare me. It doesn't matter. You might as well just say you hate Him because at the end of the day, it's the same outcome for anyone who doesn't receive Him for who He said He was, which is Lord. So the whole nation will end up in a worse state, as will any individual in Israel who saw their Messiah and didn't receive the message. What do we know happened to the nation as a whole? Well, they ended up being destroyed by Rome, kicked out of their nation, temple destroyed, and for 2,000 odd years they've been persecuted. Certainly a worse state than they were in before Jesus showed up. And individually, you have the nation of Israel hardened, Paul says in Romans 11. Apart from a remnant, as a nation generally, they're not coming to know Christ. That was the consequence. Friends, if we treat only the body and not the soul, we fail people in the same way that Israel failed when they saw Jesus. So as we leave this, as we move out of this and into the rest of the book, here's what we're going to start to see differently. We're going to start to see this move from Jesus talking to Israel to Jesus talking to us. Because the program is us. We are the program. And so for the second half of the book, he's training men who will then train others, who will eventually train others who trained us, to be those who will go out with a message saying, I have a program, a kingdom, would you like to be part of it? It's coming soon. That's where we're going. Ultimately, with him on the cross, so that all of that can be made possible. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, that you have given us the program of the kingdom, and that you've given us wisdom to understand and receive what you've said. And I ask, Father, tonight that as we contemplate what you said through Christ to your people, Israel, about the judgment, about those who heard from less and did more with it, that we would also think carefully of what you've given to us in the years that you lead us on this earth and that we would make the most of it for your glory, through our obedience. And help us, Father, to reach out to those in the future who might want to know these things themselves. Let us be ready with a word, having heard it ourselves. Bring us back to study more in a week to come. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to finish there without a song. For the sake of time, I pray that you guys have a great week. We'll see you next Saturday night.